Hi, I'm Dave Nicolation. I'm chair of the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada, and I'm based in Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, and welcome to the Identity North podcast. Identity North is Canada's premier identity community. At our conferences, we bring together Canadian and global leaders to share the big ideas and innovations that are shaping the global digital economy. I'm Aaron Hamilton, your host and the chair of Identity North. We have three goals at IDN. We want to educate, connect key players, and to promote Canadian innovations and organizations. We want Identity North to be the platform to discover and explore the big questions, innovations, and ideas shaping the digital economy here in Canada and around the world. Digital ID and authentication are ultimately the foundation for our digital economy. All of our interactions, our transactions, and our online lives depend on the creation of robust, secure, and scalable systems that allow us to prove who we are online. Guests will include leaders from both the public and the private sector, with a focus on Canadian leaders working at home and abroad. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Connect with us online on Twitter at Identity North or via email at info at identitynorth.ca. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Identity North podcast. In this podcast, we're going to talk to Dave Nicolasian, the founding chair of the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada. Dave started the DIAC when he was the chief information officer at the government of the province of British Columbia. Dave's moved on from that role, and he's now the deputy minister of energy, mines, and petroleum resources, but he's kept his role as the chair of the DIAC. We're going to ask him about how he saw this as a major problem on the horizon over 20 years ago and how we got working on it, and how we convinced others to start paying attention. I also want to ask him about balancing his rather demanding full-time job with his role as a chair of the DIAC, what the DIAC is trying to accomplish, and what's going on right now. Dave, welcome to the Identity North podcast. Thanks, Aaron. I'm very happy to be here. It's an important topic. Thanks. So tell me, take me back to the beginning. When did you first turn your attention to the idea of digital ID? I guess around the year 2003, maybe slightly after that, when I was appointed uh, chief information officer for the province of British Columbia and uh, began turning my mind to uh, service delivery matters. In those days, it was the heyday of e-government initiatives and governments everywhere wanting to go online and move their service delivery away from counters and towards the internet. And it struck me that it was going quite well in many regards, but I considered it actually to be a bit of a failure. And simply because what I saw is we were moving the easy things online, the ability for people to fill out forms online or to you know interact with what was a traditional service delivery model. And we we're really missing the boat on what I call the hard stuff. For example, being able to do our healthcare interactions online. Huh. So what made you think that, that was going to become important? I just think that citizens expect more of their government. They really want to be able to do the things that are important to them online. So be able to interact with their schools and their teachers and, and actually give permission for their kids to do things online or be able to interact with their doctors or their healthcare records online. And clearly those things are important because they weren't online. 
And the reason they weren't online, and in many cases, even today still are not online, is because the price of a mistake for government is just too high. So government cannot afford to make a mistake with someone's health records. There's no undo button once you violate someone's privacy in, in that fundamental way. And so because that importance to citizens for those services is so high, in many, many cases, they just aren't able to go online because there's no real true fundamental way to know who's who on the internet. So talk to me about usernames and passwords, though, because we've been using those for quite a while. You don't see that as the way that move ahead? I think user IDs and passwords are just fine for what I call the easy stuff. And it's also, quite frankly, okay where there is an undo button. We do our online banking today with user IDs and passwords, and bank indemnifies us if there's a problem. If someone gets my online banking password and steals all my money, the bank will give it back to me, and I'm okay with that bargain. But it goes back to what I said about where you need very, very high assurance levels, and you don't have an ironclad way to know who's who, that's where the issue is. And, and, you know, there are examples of government services that are working, that are high value, high assurance services, but they're very siloed, I would say. So this is talking about building something that's going to work for a lot of different services. Are we talking about a master username password for all the government services? Is that really what we're talking about? What we're talking about is uh, something in the digital realm that is analogous to what citizens enjoy in what I call the paper or plastic world. So the way it works today, if something's really important and you're in the paper world, you know it's important because someone asked for your ID. You're trying to rent a car or get an important service somewhere and they really actually need to know who you really are, they ask you for ID. And inevitably, the ID that you present is a government ID. So driver's license, birth certificates, passports, those things that governments issue that really validate your identity. So what we're talking about is somehow moving that metaphor into the online world. And you would be able to have, as a citizen, access to a wide range of digital identities, but you would be in control of when to present those identities, uh, what they're used for, and most importantly, government would not know which ID you're choosing to use when for what purpose, that it would be the user or the citizen that's in control of their digital identity. So what we're talking about is the ability to transact just like we are in person. So if I walk in, as you said, so I go to rent a car, they're going to ask me for ID. And I, you're right, I'll inevitably pull out my driver's license because I also need to be able to prove that I have the right to drive. I can rent a car online right now, but I guess I still need to be able to go into the depot to pick it up, and that's when they're going to ask for proof of my ID. I'm trying to think about the kinds of scenarios where I wouldn't end up going into a store. Maybe one of those things might be if I wanted to buy a phone online and then have it activated right at home without having to go into a store. Yeah, it's a great example because right now, the only way you can do that is if you're already a customer of that telephone company's services. If you're trying to switch companies or buy a phone for the first time, you actually can't do that. And the reason you can't is the phone company actually needs to know who you are, and so you have to go to one of their counters. It's one of the reasons that there's storefronts everywhere, Bell stores, Telestars, et cetera, is ultimately, <laughs> for the same reason the banks still have branches everywhere, that before you can move online, 
you have to have that ceremony in person. Uh, banking is another great example. We all enjoy doing our online banking. But if you go look at the banking regulations, the only reason that banking online works is because somewhere, somewhere in your past, you walked into a branch and you signed a card to open an account. And that was and is the foundation for that ability to move services online. So now think about you know, how that works. It really doesn't scale and it, it doesn't serve us well to move some of the new services online like I talked about earlier. One of the things I find really interesting here is that we very quickly migrated from talking about government services into how I'm using my government ID, the private sector, or out there in the non-government entities. Is that a big part of what we're talking about? Because if we're going to need the government to issue me a new ID, just so I can transact in the, in the business world as well? Yeah, it's not about government issuing you a new ID. It's about the ability for government online to be able to validate that you already have a government ID. And that's a pretty big distinction. And another way to think about it is I have uh, a whole wallet full of cards and ID. I have you know, a Costco card. I have you know a loyalty card from my grocery store. I have a driver's license. I have a birth certificate. Those are all different forms of identity and they're used for different things. So I can use my Costco card to identify myself to Costco as a member and everything works great. It's perfectly fine. But if I tried to use my Costco card to prove who I was to open a new bank account, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, that's up to the bank. The way to think of it is the user should have all of that metaphor of my paper wallet should exist online. So I can have digital cards, you know, in finger quotes, if you like, of all of those types of identities. And I, as the, the citizen, can choose which card to use when for what purposes. The relying party can decide whether or not that's sufficient identification to, for the transaction we're trying to do. And this is where DIAC is so important because to create an ecosystem that would work like I just described. You need a number of players on all sides. You know, the people who are willing to vouch you know, online that that's you, that you know, how will we decide what level of assurance for what type of service. It, to build an ecosystem like that is hard. There's other folks on the internet like Facebook and others that have a different view of how that should work. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I see the private sector stepping up to try to find ways of authenticating. I can use Facebook and Google to log into all kinds of services these days. They vouch for who I am. Yeah, that is the other alternative. And in fact, in the absence of DIAC and other you know, privacy-minded groups, that is the future. And Facebook's a great example. It's a very convenient way to validate who you are online by using my Facebook account or my Twitter account or those kinds of things. Big, big problem is from a privacy perspective. Make no mistake, Facebook would love to be the identity provider for the internet, as would Amazon, as would Google, as would uh, Apple. But those companies want to be in the middle of that for two reasons. They will know everywhere you go and everything you do as you pass through them. Say, let's imagine a scenario. Let's use our Facebook account to get at our electronic health records. I, for one, am not comfortable with Facebook knowing where I go on the internet and what I do and then monetizing that as part of their business model. I think a strong Canadian value is back to what I said, where the user should be at the center of the picture, not Facebook. I understand what your value proposition here is. I'm amazed that you were able to see this in 2003. 
How easy was it to get everybody else on board that, and understand that this is going to be an important thing for the future? Not easy at all, and it's still a struggle, quite frankly, today. I think I was very fortunate to work in British Columbia, where we had a, a generation of political leaders that saw the value of a general purpose identity service for government services. So we were able to leverage the fact that we were going to renew our health care card to be a general purpose identity service for all government services in British Columbia. And we purposely mapped our technological roadmap onto the banking world so that our technology can ride on those rails. But it is still a struggle today to get governments, people, businesses to spend money on a general purpose, privacy respectful set of architectures and services. So uh, you mentioned the health cards. I remember the health cards from back when I was younger and there was a nice white and red card that had a series of like 16 digit number on the front of it. And you know, a lot of people still have those in their wallets today. Uh, although Ontario and other provinces have been moving over to different versions. Is the BC health card even different than, than the one that we have in, say, Ontario? The fundamental difference isn't the card, although they are very different. Our card has uh, what's called EMV and NFC technology inside of it so that you can tap it and it works exactly like the bank cards to present the card. But much, much more importantly is it's, in my opinion, not that useful an exercise to just replace one plastic card with a different plastic card. The key issue is what's the enrollment activity behind the issuance of that card? And what we did in BC is we decided to marry the expiry of citizens' driver's licenses with the issuance of our new services card. So as people appeared at our driver's licensing counters to renew their driver's license, they were asked a set of questions and we offered them the ability to combine their driver's license with their services card. So in BC, most citizens, the vast majority of people in BC don't have a health card. We just have one card. It's our driver's license. It's our services card for health care, for other government services. It has that smart technology in it so you can tap it. All of that's really, really cool. But what we did is we made sure you were who you said you are before we issued you that card. So we created that ceremony at the counter to validate you. So now there's no duplication of cards. I mean, I was a typical person in BC. I had three care cards because I thought I lost one. So they issued me another one and then I found the first one. So there's, we don't have that issue anymore in British Columbia. What other things can I do with my new BC services card? The main thing you can do with the BC Services card is still focused inside of healthcare. And what we're moving to is an ability at healthcare counters to implement that technology so that when you present the card, you can tap it. And rather than the card being full of information, the card actually connects to a system that we have to identify our citizens. And it feeds the information back to the providers on who you are, are you eligible for services, and so on. So that's building up now. It took four years, actually, four and a half years to go through the enrollment process because, as I said earlier, it was tied to driver's license renewals. And so we're just now tying in the services now that everyone has our services card. Do you have a vision for what some of the other services are and some of the digital services that I will be able to use? 
Oh, yeah. There's lots of use cases being worked through as we speak. So in my current role as uh, Deputy Minister of Energy Mines and Petroleum Resources, uh, one of the classic use cases we're looking at is online voting as it applies to resource development projects. So classic problem we have, and uh, pipelines is a great example, a very confrontational and contentious issue in British Columbia building oil pipelines. It's very difficult for the government to find out what people actually think. It's not difficult at all to get on Twitter or Facebook, see what the media thinks. The shouting is nonstop. But what do people, the average person, really think? And traditionally, we would have done that by holding town hall meetings. That doesn't work anymore for obvious reasons. Can't do things, you know, online with polling or whatever because the trolls just take it over. And by the way, who cares what some anonymous user in Germany thinks about our pipelines? If you think about what we have the ability to do now with our services card is we could open up an online way to interact with us that would say, okay, I know you are from for example, the city of Kamloops. I know you're over the age of the majority. I do not need to know your name. I don't need to know where you live. I don't need to know your sex. I just need to know that you're legitimately a BC citizen who lives in this community. And I want to know what you think and guarantee you anonymity while at the same time ensuring that you only voted once. There's a classic use case that you can do something online that you just can't even do in the paper world. Okay, so that's a really interesting example of how we're going to be able to use this technology and the concepts around digital ID and authentication to really open up new services and open up whole new experiences and really enrich people's lives. I find that really interesting, and I'm amazed that you were able to see this in 2003, 15 years ago. How did your early work at BC end up turning into something on a national level with this Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada, the DIAC, as you say? Yeah, it's as usual with a lot of things. There was a lot of serendipity. Right around 2005 to 2008 period, we had a finance minister named Jim Flaherty. And that was also the time that there was the global banking crisis. The worldwide financial meltdown happened in that period. And one of the things that Minister Flaherty did was initiate something called the Payment Systems Review Task Force. That was all in support of, first of all, Canada survived the global meltdown better than a lot of countries simply because of our banking system being more resilient. And so this task force was created to look into that and build on that. And payments, the future of payments, the friction around online payments, all of that was a primary focus of that task group. The work of BC being early on and leading edge drew the attention of that task force. And as a result, we had an influential role within there. One of the recommendations coming out of that task force was to create a national effort around digital identity. And that's where DIAC came from. If so, I understand how you got into this through as the CIO, and you've explained to me some of the interesting use cases in your current responsibility of energy mines and petroleum resources. Is that why you've continued to play the role as the chair of the DIAC? Yeah, that's absolutely one of the reasons. It's important for British Columbia and you know where we want to take our digital services broadly, and I have something to offer to that, so I'm happy to contribute it. I also would say that I've been very blessed with board members at DIAC. All of the members of the board are executive level folks who also have very busy other jobs uh, in banking, telcos, and so on. And they 
very much see the opportunity and, and importance to their businesses and they're Canadians. We take pride in trying to create something here that's uh, Canadian. How do you see the DIACs work going to help with some of the needs of those players, the banks and the telcos and the, uh, the small, medium-sized businesses across the country? What's the plan? So I talked earlier about an ecosystem. It's a very important concept. It's relatively easy to build what I call a walled garden approach like Facebook or Amazon and those folks. Even though scale is difficult, conceptually, it's much simpler. To build an ecosystem takes a village. The reason that all of these players and partners, DIAC's well north of 50 members now, the reason we've come together is because we all genuinely see this can be bigger than the sum of its parts. And we genuinely, as Canadians, subscribe to those privacy values and the importance of the user being in control and no big brother, all of those things. We genuinely see how the private sector can still make money at this. It's really important, though, that in order for that all to become true, Canada cannot be an island. So we also need to make sure that not only does it work, but we then influence the world. Why does Canada have to lead on this? Why can't we just wait for the rest of the world to figure this out and then follow on? Uh, it's been observed before. The world needs more Canada. We swing way above our weight internationally on this because a lot of the actual leaders in digital identity worldwide actually are Canadians. They live in other places now, but there's a lot of Canadians in a lot of important places on this topic in the world. The Europeans, the Scandinavian countries, even some others are gravitating towards this architectural message we have of user centricity, privacy respectfulness. You can just see what's happening in Europe around a privacy issue generally. There's, people are gravitating towards this message anyways. And we do have some credibility given you know, those players I talked about. The debate is really will an architectural model that embraces privacy and user centricity win the day? Or will we end up with some mix of the walled gardens? I, I can tell you Apple would be happy to pay the bill to put uh, iTunes and Apple Pay in the middle of the, the picture and nobody ever has to spend another dollar as long as we're happy to have Apple control the ecosystem. Or if you don't like Apple, insert Google, insert Facebook. That is the stakes. That's what's being worked on. It's a tug of war every day, but that's what we're at. We're busy at. So I noticed that when you described the members, you were it sounded like you were talking about a mix of public sector and private sector. Can you explain to me the philosophy around that? And is that different than other places? Very much so. And again, it's that ecosystem slash Canadian story. We're wonderfully blessed in as much as we don't have 5,000 banks like they have in the U.S. We have five big banks. We have a limited number of telcos. And on the board of the DIAC, we have a mix of banks, telcos, and other governments. So the federal government is a member of DIAC. We have other provinces, including Ontario, that are members of DIAC. That, again, goes to this notion of making sure that this isn't a public sector initiative, nor is it a private sector initiative. It's a Canadian initiative. And that's a great place to leave this episode of the Identity North podcast. Next, we're going to talk to Joni Brennan, the president of the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada, about day-to-day -day and what's coming out of the diet. I'm Aaron Hamilton. 
Thanks for tuning in. Remember to check out the upcoming Identity North workshops and the annual summit. Tickets are now on sale at identitynorth.ca.